Hello, everyone, and welcome to the April 13th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Skarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation news. So-called medical marijuana has yet to become an issue in workers' compensation claims. And now, the industry is under attack by several city attorneys throughout the state. The Los Angeles city attorney announced that a citywide crackdown has prompted more than 500 medical marijuana shops to close down in less than two years. That represents a jump from a year ago when about 100 pot shops had been shuttered. The city attorney has also targeted other ways medical marijuana has been distributed. He secured court injunctions against a Boyle Heights pot farmer's market and a smartphone app used to arrange pot deliveries. Still, the city does not know how many marijuana businesses continue to operate. And some critics say that the crackdown may amount to nothing more than a game of whack-a-mole. Under Proposition D, approved by voters two years ago, pot shops and the landlords that lease them space can be prosecuted if the businesses do not meet a number of requirements. Requirements include being registered under past L.A. ordinances and operating a specified distance from public parks, schools, and other facilities. At the time, police officials said they believed roughly 700 pot shops were operating, although some estimates put that figure at more than twice that amount. When the restrictions were approved, city officials estimated that fewer than 140 medical marijuana dispensaries would be eligible to remain open and avoid prosecution. According to the Office of Finance, last year more than 450 medical marijuana shops filed tax renewals to report their gross receipts. The number appears to have fallen slightly this year, with 415 businesses renewing around the March deadline. But it isn't clear if the tax numbers account for all the shops. More than 1,100 dispensaries are still registered on the books to pay business taxes, though city officials say many of those may have closed without telling the finance office. UCLA researchers who canvassed addresses they found online and through city registrations found 418 marijuana businesses operating in Los Angeles last year, more than three times the number supposedly allowed. That was only a slight decrease from two years earlier when a similar survey found 476 shops. The UCLA Medical Marijuana Research Team also found that marijuana shops have been shifting from the San Fernando Valley and East Los Angeles to South Los Angeles and San Pedro. San Diego reports a similar struggle to control the number of shops. In four years, more than 200 of the dispensaries have been shut down in that city, with 40 more awaiting enforcement all open during the time when the city had no zoning that would permit marijuana dispensaries. The San Diego City Council in July adopted a medical marijuana ordinance allowing no more than four dispensaries in each of the nine council districts. A dozen applications are now being reviewed. Officials say that aggressive enforcement of city zoning regulations is necessary to protect neighborhood standards and safety. 
Medical marijuana is an $18 million tax boon for the city of San Jose. But two of the South Bay's largest dispensaries are now in a conflict with city leaders. In February, the investigative unit revealed that some San Jose pot shops owed millions in unpaid marijuana taxes. The San Jose mayor sent a message to the owners of Med Medismarts in San Jose and All-American Cannabis Club in West San Jose to pack up. He said it was time to move on and pay up on your way out. Medismart owners said the mayor's tough talk puts him between a rock and a hard place. By paying the city's marijuana business tax, the company is also admitting to selling a federally banned substance. The All-American Cannabis Club in San Jose made the same argument. Many cities have banned cannabis dispensaries while others tax and regulate them. The federal government has a history of threatening California City Council members, county supervisors, and government staffers with drug trafficking charges if they seek to regulate medical cannabis cultivation or distribution. Federal prosecutors have shut down cultivation regulation programs in Humboldt County and Oakland. And now our fraud report. The Santa Clara County District Attorney announced the prosecution of three workers' compensation claimants. A lab worker, a housekeeper at a local mall, and a roofer have each been charged with felony insurance fraud in separate cases in which they allegedly falsely claimed that their workplace injuries had prevented them from returning to work. 39-year-old Cosme Cortez Avia of San Jose 28-year-old Nancy Benitez of San Jose, and 53-year-old Atenger Singh Chada of Union City could be sentenced to prison time. All three have been arraigned and are out on custody and await preliminary hearings. The three cases share allegations that the defendants claimed debilitating injuries and were later seen to be doing physical activities beyond their stated limitations while collecting thousands in insurance benefits. In one case, a man was videotaped for two hours, clambering up and down from a roof despite claiming that he was too hurt to work and terrified of ladders. Avia, who fell off a roof and badly injured his back in 2013, falsely testified at a deposition that he had not worked at all since his injury. Benitez, who was hurt doing housekeeping for a store at Valley Fair Mall in 2011, told the insurance company that she could not walk or drive without extreme pain. But she was later seen driving to a mall, shopping and caring for a small child. Chada said that he was hurt during a 2011 accident at the lab where he worked, could not work, and was reliant upon his wife's income. But an investigation found that he was actually the owner and operator of a gas station and that he was concealing his income. North Hollywood resident George Kupelian was sentenced to 30 months in custody for his role in a $1 million fraud scheme and was ordered to repay nearly that amount in restitution. Capellian and others operated the El Centro Clinic located at 485 Broadway Street 
in El Centro, California as a Medicare billing mill. Kopelian admitted that he set up the clinic and found a doctor to act as the official physician of record. But Kopelian acknowledged the doctor served primarily as a front so that he could use his Medicare billing number to submit Medicare claims. Kupelian was further admitting that he recruited and paid cappers, individuals whose sole task was to find senior citizens in El Centro and convince them to go to the clinic. In exchange for providing their Medicare beneficiary numbers, the senior citizens received a free pair of shoes and a free buffet lunch. Once they arrived at the clinic, the beneficiaries were subject to a predetermined gauntlet of tests, which were not based on the patient's medical needs and were provided without proper supervision by a physician. In some cases, the clinic billed Medicare despite the fact that the tests were not provided at all. Capellian also arranged for a so-called physician assistant to see patients, write progress notes, and order tests. The so-called PA was in fact unlicensed to practice medicine in any capacity in California. Many of the tests that the clinic claimed to have administered to beneficiaries required either that a physician administer the test or that a physician be within the clinic during testing. On over 800 occasions, the clinic billed Medicare for these tests despite cell phone location records showing that the doctor was not in Imperial County at all during the times these tests were administered. Kupelian also admitted creating sample lab sheets and billing forms with certain tests and diagnoses already checked. He instructed the clinic's employees to duplicate the check boxes from the sample forms on patients' actual forms without regard to the patient's actual medical conditions or what tests they actually needed or received. Moreover, he instructed the clinic's employees that all patients were to undergo all of the tests offered by the clinic without regard to the patient's actual diagnoses or what tests they actually needed. After the unnecessary tests were conducted, Kupelian inserted false test results into patient files to make it appear that tests had been done and results were appropriately generated when in fact they had not. Kupelian was ordered to surrender on July 8, 2015. A federal grand jury indicted the general manager of a La Puente garment factory on charges of offering to pay bribes to an investigator with the United States Department of Labor in exchange for the investigator closing an investigation into wage violations. 41-year-old Howard Trin of Arcadia, the manager of Seven Brothers Enterprises, is accused in the indictment of bribery of a public official. The indictment charges Trin with offering to pay $10,000 in bribes. Trin allegedly offered the bribe to secure the release of a hold known as a hot goods objection that had been placed on a shipment by the investigator. As part of the bribery scheme, Trin actually paid the investigator $3,000. The investigator was investigating seven brothers for violating the Fair Labor Standards Act, which sets standards for minimum wage and overtime pay. 
The Labor Department wage and hour investigator led a team that conducted an unannounced visit to Seven Brothers on March 10. Investigators found that Seven Brothers owed approximately $100,000 to compensate employees for wage violations. When the investigator returned to Seven Brothers, Trend said he did not owe his employees any back wages and that he wanted to take care of the investigator. The Labor Department's Office of Investigator General initiated an investigation and outfitted the investigator with recording equipment. During a recording, recorded meeting, Trin allegedly offered the investigator $10,000 to close out the investigation without finding any violations and to lift the hot goods objection. The next day, during another recorded meeting, Trin gave the investigator an initial payment of $3,000 in a manila envelope. At his initial court appearance, Trin was ordered released on a $200,000 bond. If he is convicted of the bribery count, he would face a statutory maximum sentence of 15 years in federal prison. The investigation in this case was conducted by the United States Department of Labor, Office of the Investigator General, Office of Labor Racketeering, and Fraud Investigations. And in medical news, a new study found that physical therapy may work as well as surgery for easing symptoms of lumbar spinal stenosis, a common cause of nerve damage and lower back pain among older people. Lumbar spinal stenosis, a compression of open spaces in the lower spinal column, can lead to pinched nerves, tingling, weakness, and numbness in the back and lower extremities. According to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, the condition becomes more common with age, and an estimated 2.4 million Americans may have it by 2021. Experts say that surgery is riskier than physical therapy since there is about a 15% complication rate with surgery, and half of those are life-threatening. There is no life-risking procedure to do physical therapy. In the study, researchers set out to see if they could show that physical therapy could work as well as surgery at easing symptoms. They asked 481 patients who consented to surgery if they would be willing to join a study where they would be randomly chosen to proceed with the operation or receive physical therapy. Most declined to avoid being assigned to the non-surgical group, but 169 patients agreed to participate in the experiment. Ultimately, 87 patients had surgery and 82 were assigned physical therapy consisting of twice weekly rehabilitation sessions for six weeks. Participants were allowed to opt out of this regimen in favor of surgery at any point during the study and 47 of them, or 57% did just that. No matter what group they started in, participants achieved a similar reduction of pain and other symptoms at two years. The study demonstrates that both surgery and physical therapy are reasonable choices. The director of the Orthopedic and Arthritis Center for Outcomes Research at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston said that the person who goes down either path ends up in the same place a year or two later. However, there is still a role for surgery in treating lumbar spinal stenosis. 
but there's no harm in trying physical therapy first, he said. Still, surgery should be the last option. However, patients should realize they are likely to need physical therapy even after successful surgery, and recovery can be slow. And in regulatory news, Christine Baker, director of the DIR, has submitted a legislatively mandated status report on refinery regulatory oversight required by the Budget Act of 2014. This report helps set the unit funding and the design and implementation of a new approach for regulating the petroleum refining industry. In 2014, DIR convened or participated in over 20 stakeholder meetings with the petroleum refining industry, refinery workers, community-based organizations, and the public. At each of these meetings, DIR presented the findings and recommendations of the governor's report and described DIR's proposed revisions to the safety standard for refineries for discussion and feedback. Three of these meetings consisted of DIR's advisory committee made up of representatives of labor and industry, and all 20 meetings were open to members of the public. These meetings served as an important vehicle for accessing the technical expertise of refinery managers and workers, representatives of labor unions and community-based organizations, members of professional associations, and members of the public. Many of the recommendations generated in these meetings were incorporated into the revisions to safety standards, which are organized into seven elements. Currently, refineries in California are complying to varying degrees with six of these seven elements. The exception is hierarchy of hazard control analysis, which is a relatively new concept with which only refineries in Contra Costa County are fully familiar. The status report outlines some of the next steps. In 2015, DIR is coordinating an interagency enforcement working group to discuss the coordination of enforcement activities, including cross-referrals, cross-training, and joint or coordinated inspections and auditing. The working group will also identify the refineries to be targeted for inspection. Lastly, the group will discuss the facilitation and development of an electronic information and data sharing system among federal, state, and local agencies. The system will include information about inspections, compliance, and enforcement activity, as well as the means to collect information identified in reports and a process for timely flow of information between regulatory agencies. Health and safety standards are intended to prevent catastrophic explosions, fires, and releases of dangerous chemicals. An accusation against a Sacramento QME in psychiatry by the California Medical Board clarifies the standard of care and record-keeping for treating physicians. Janek Matani, MD, is listed as a QME in psychiatry with an office on Fulton Avenue in Sacramento. He practices psychiatry under the business name Fair Oaks Psychiatric Associates. The California Medical Board filed an accusation against him complaining about his treatment of industrially injured patients and patients with chronic pain, anxiety, sleep disturbance, and other problems. 
The first cause in the action for discipline alleges that his treatment was grossly negligent. The second cause alleges that he committed repeated negligent acts in his care and treatment of the patients. And the third cause of action was that he prescribed controlled substances and dangerous drugs to these patients without an appropriate medical examination or medical indication. And in the fourth cause, that he failed to maintain adequate and accurate medical records in the care and treatment of these patients. These charges are only allegations and should not be considered to be true or accurate until there has been a trial on the merits and Dr. Matani be afforded an opportunity to present evidence on his behalf. However, the accusation does set forth what the California Medical Board considers to be the standard of care for industrially injured patients in a psychiatric setting. First and foremost, the accusation reiterates the requirement that medical records clearly document medical findings, histories, complaints, and rationale for treatment decisions. Often this is not seen when reviewing subpoenaed records of treating physicians. For example, one of the patients complained of weight gain, yet the accusation alleges that there has been no documentation of the doctor's discussion of her weight gain. The board complained that there was no documentation of her diet, exercise, weight, or anything that addresses the risk of weight gain associated with psychotropic medications. Another concern in the complaint was that the doctor failed to document the reason for prescribing Abilify, Ambien, and Cymbalta, and that he failed to document and or identify any concern about the risks of chronic use of benzodiazepine, Xanax, and Ambien, which are not recommended for use greater than 60 days. The accusation goes on to complain that the doctor's charting was vague and suggests that the dose of Abilify was increased because the patient was having thoughts about cutting. Yet the doctor failed to document what was being treated other than reducing anxiety and his concern about cutting. There is no description or identification of target symptoms, no identified measurable signs or symptoms to assess the progress or lack of progress in treatment. And the board complained that his clinical descriptions were vague and difficult to interpret. The medical board also complained that the doctor noted that his patient remains disabled from gainful employment without explaining and documenting exactly how the disability affects her life and what are the barriers for progress. The accusation summarizes another case where the doctor allegedly did not respond to letters sent by the state compensation insurance fund and failed to document treatment goals and target symptoms so that the progress of treatment could be objectively evaluated. These factors, among others, are, according to the medical board, allegedly gross negligent and reason to bring disciplinary action against the QME. The accusation also alleges concern about the lack of an interpreter. The board alleges that a medical assistant was at times used as an interpreter, and during one follow-up visit, the interpreter was not notified of the appointment, so she was seen without one. While these 
accusations may or may not be proven against this particular psychiatrist. They nonetheless set forth examples of what the California Medical Board considers to be appropriate care for industrially injured workers with psychiatric complaints and what the Medical Board considers to be gross negligence. This accusation should serve as a guideline for appropriate record-keeping and care. All too often, this is not the case reflected in typical subpoenaed records that are reviewed. New draft regulations indicate that the DWC proposes to issue QME panels immediately online. The division has issued a notice of public hearing on these proposed changes to the Qualified Medical Evaluator Regulations. The proposal will amend existing regulations and forms to implement an online panel process for represented initial panel requests. If passed, parties in a represented case will be required to submit initial QME panel requests online. They will then immediately receive a QME panel. The requesting party will then serve the panel request form, any required documentation, and the QME panel on all parties with a proof of service. The proposed rulemaking will also simplify QME Form 105 for unrepresented injured workers. The proposed regulations also makes non-substantive changes to the QME appointment from reappointment form and the QME unavailability form. A public hearing on the proposed regulations has been scheduled at 10 o'clock a.m. on Friday, May 22, 2015, in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, located at 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comment on the regulations until 5 o'clock p.m. that day. The DWC will consider all public comments and may modify the proposed regulations for consideration during an additional 15-day public comment period. The notices of rulemaking, text of the regulations, and the initial statement of reasons can be found at the DWC rulemaking page. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.